Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, Hims, Calm, The Great Courses Plus, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. On a dreary winter's night in 1766, a ship had sought safety from a raging storm in Slade Harbor, which is on the eastern side of the Narrowhook Peninsula in southeastern Ireland. The ship's only passenger, a dark, mysterious stranger, made his way in the pouring rain from the harbor to nearby farmland, where he acquired a horse. From there, he rode to the location of tonight's legend, Loftus Hall, almost exactly one kilometer, or just under three quarters of a mile to the northwest. It so happens that on that night, there were other guests already present, playing cards to pass the time in the stately but remote country mansion on the west side of the peninsula. The stranger was welcomed into the house, appearing to be well-educated and possibly even high-born. According to one version of the legend, after drawing off, he was invited to stay a few days, until the Atlantic calmed enough for him to set sail again. It seemed the perfect opportunity for the unattached 21-year-old daughter of the house, Anne Tottenham, to get to know the dashing stranger, with whom she was quite taken. Oh, but there was so much more undercurrent to this story than one would think. You see, nothing is what it seems in this legend. In fact, even Charles Loftus, the owner of the estate, is an owner only by marriage, forced to take the Loftus name if he wished to lay claim to Loftus Hall and the surrounding lands. His given name was Charles Tottenham. He was Anne Tottenham's father, and much to his chagrin, he would ultimately turn out to be the least powerful person in this tale. The real power laid with the dark stranger, who, after a short stay, departed Loftus Hall in a literal fiery rage, shooting up through the ceilings and neighboring floors of the three-story estate before blasting through the roof and disappearing into a thunderous downpour, forever cementing his place in history at the most haunted house in Ireland. Young Anne Tottenham never recovered from the experience of that night, effectively beginning a long journey to insanity. She would be dead nine years later, at just 31 years old. There are those that say the devil himself courted Anne Tottenham at Loftus Hall that fateful night in 1766. Tonight, we take this story apart and look for the seeds of truth behind the legend. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Here lies the body of Thomas Brodus, who did good and prayed for all, and banished the devil from Loftus Hall. Epitaph on Father Thomas Brodus's grave, 30 minutes north of the hall. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series on the most haunted house in Ireland, Loftus Hall. Well, I know two listeners who will be very excited that we're covering tonight's subject. Our moms? <laughs> my mom doesn't listen. I know. I don't, my mom doesn't listen either. <laughs> that's okay. It's so sad. This think, suddenly got really sad. No, no. I, I, my, my dad just tells her about the episodes, and he doesn't listen either. He has me just retell him the whole right. story. Right. When you go to visit, you have to recap every I just, episode he just, he just over the past it. six months. Yeah, it's just too much to listen to. But I get that. That's a big time commitment, even for a retired person. I know. Well, the, the two listeners we have that are going to be very excited... We thank them quite a bit because they suggested this topic. The first one, of course, I think who's going to be 
super excited is Tony. Yes. Known as at Tony K B seven seven seven. And he's an Irish aircraft engineer. Yes. And he's been to this place and he very generously and kindly sent us both a copy of the documentary on DVD. Yes. As well as a book by Chris Rush called The Legend of Loftus Hall. Yes, actually, the, that's also the documentary, I believe, too. Yeah, they're both called The Legend of Loftus yeah. Hall. And Chris Rush's book is actually a fictionalized account of the legend, which is appropriate in this case. And we'll be talking to Chris Rush in part two of this series. This story is so hard to pin down. It's one of the first times that we've actually gone to a fictionalized account for some information because Chris did yeah. a lot of research. Yeah. And he lives there right. and he's there frequently and was there, I think, the day before we interviewed him <laughs> yeah. or something like that a few days ago. But um, he really dug down on it. So we are drawing from his book as well as other accounts from local legends and our normal research that we've done. Yeah. And we'll point out to you when it's something that he specifically fictionalized. But a lot of the characterizations he made in his story come from things that make sense when you look at the original legend and, yeah. and the lore that surrounds Loftus Hall. Right, because in between that, the facts that we know, because these are real people at a real place who are documented and are part of this legend, which started off as an oral tradition, ended up being recorded in print at some point way down the line. This is a genuine legend about real people, which is legendary. So there are a few gaps in there which lend themselves to dramatization, we could say. And that other source, The Legend of Loftus Hall, was a documentary, kind of a docudrama produced by Rick Whelan, who I believe is from Wexford. So it's kind of a local legend to him as well. He did a lot of good research at the time. And this documentary was produced and came out in 1993. Yes. It does have a certain... <laughs> a lot of 90s charm. Je ne sais quoi <laughs> to it. It has a flavor. Yeah. It has a flavor for yeah. sure. It reminded me a lot because... In the 90s, I was actually working in music videos <laughs> as an assistant editor, a and it took yeah. me right back to all those dailies. But the story is still in there. It's kind of fun. It's like if you took MTV Classic and you made a documentary about Loftus Hall, that's what it it's is. It's very yeah. cool for that, because <laughs> again, that night, the fateful night in question, we don't exactly know all of the details as they went down. There are some suggestions of what happened ultimately, but what did they experience? These real people. How did that go down? Well, you have to dramatize that bit. And as Scott said, there's some 90s music video flair to it, especially in one scene, which is a lot of fun. But Rick Whelan, the producer and director and writer, has become a bit of an authority on Loftus. And there are some details that he covers in the documentary that you can only get, I think, from being there and looking at some local records. Now, they conflict with some other stories, so we'll take a look at those interesting differences. But So that was a lot of fun. The other listener who also suggested this story that I just happened to make a note of, I've been trying to be better about that, is listener Dennis Murphy, and he is at Dren Murph on Twitter. So you're just going to go ahead and call these guys out, huh? <laughs> well, Let everybody know where to find hey, them. Hey, if you want a lot of local flavor in your tweets, certainly check these guys out. Yeah. Sincere thank you to both of them for suggesting tonight's topic. And they did that independently of each other, right? I believe they did. Yeah. I don't think they know each other. So that happens. <laughs> that happens happen. a lot, actually. Well, two or three times a day we get asked about Elisa Lamb. So. No, but, uh, <laughs> but Tony was very insistent. Yes. We cover this and also very generously went so far as to supply us the materials. Yes. It's an interesting course of how a family legend becomes a regional legend. 
So in the cold open, you got a little bit of an overview. We didn't want to give the whole story away in the cold open. We certainly so could have. We certainly could have. And there would be no reason to listen to the rest of this. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. We either tell you the whole thing right up front or we bury the lead. <laughs> Don't even tell you what's happening for an yeah, hour in. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> but this, we're but, getting better, right? I think we're getting better uh, about you it. You still uh, say I spoil the ending to everything. But well, yes. In this case, though, here is the general telling of the legend and as we'll see, with every legend, there are variables, depending on the location, the regional locations. Yes, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit. So we thought that what we would do is start tonight's show out with a broad overview of the bigger picture of the legend. So that's where I'm going to come in right now. A lot of this is based on research that we did. Some of this is based on the book I mentioned, The Legend of Loftus Hall by Chris Rush, that we talked about earlier, which is a fictionalized account or a dramatized account of the legend itself, although a lot of it is rooted in uh, solid research. Mm -hmm. So this starts out, we're not exactly positive because the dates appear different in different places, but we came up with a theory last night. Some stories attribute this to 1765, some attribute it to 1766, and what we're thinking is because all of them say that it was during the holidays. It's around a Christmas, Christmas story. It, yes, this is a Christmas story, much yeah. like Die Hard. So we're thinking is that it probably happened or we're going to say, we get to do that because this was hundreds of years ago mm -hmm. and nobody can prove we're wrong. We're going to say that it maybe happened in December of 1765. And if it took place over several days, which mm -hmm. is one version, yeah. one version said it was one night. Another version says that it took place for over several days. And then it played out for months and months and even years, if you look at the big picture. That would be towards the end of 1765 and into 1766, which mm -hmm. is why we would say that Anne Tottenham was 21 because she was in 1765 but she turned 22 in, in 66. So theoretically, when this guy arrived, the dark stranger, as Chris Rush calls him, she would have been 21. And uh, that's important, as you'll see here in a minute. Mm -hmm. So the story starts out with your classic dark and stormy night, right? Yeah, actually described that way. It was described that way. Heavy guess, rains, heavy, uh, rains. heavy winds. It's December <laughs> on this peninsula yeah. in Ireland, which is notorious for bad weather. Yes, and the ocean is no joke there. The Atlantic is quite a beast. And at this point, I guess there is a ship out off the eastern coast of the Hook Peninsula, or Hook, as Forrest accurately says with an I accent. I think that's how they say the it. The Hook yeah. Peninsula. Yes. Well, the place that this is located is if you're looking at Ireland, this is in the southeastern corner of Ireland, where the shoreline more or less runs east to west. The it's, bottom end, yes. Yeah, the bottom end there. And the... Hook Peninsula comes out down there and goes from the northeast to the southwest, kind of at an angle. So the storm brings this ship in. We never really know the name of the ship. There's some of the other things we don't know about the ship is how many people are really on it, whether the dark stranger is on it by himself, whether there's other mysterious people or things or whatever that are on it, and he's just a passenger. Yeah, that one version of the legend yeah. is that he is the sole passenger on this ship. Right. You know, it's a sailing ship, so there's a captain and, I'm sure, a crew and a pilot. You know, you're sure. I'm not sure about this. You're like, I'm you, sure there were acting. all these people. <laughs> None of those people are mentioned in any version of the legend, just no. for the record. Well, because you can't, because then that makes the legend traceable. Well, whose ship was it? Whose registry was it? We got to find the captain. Yeah, was this guy see, on it? You're, now you're, you're coming all the way into reality. Like, to me, if this guy is who we think he was, he doesn't need anybody. He can just stand on the ship and it goes where he wants it well, to. Well, you're getting into the literal part of it, but that does remind no, me, No, you're Scott. in the literal part. I'm going into the crazy part. If it's True. one guy using his mind to direct a ship. Right. There is a lot of mystery as to who this man was, what his name was even, yeah. what ship was this. You bring up a good point. It does remind me of Dracula. 
yeah. being transported over the seas. And I think he ends up waking up and killing everybody. But that's the setup of this type of legend. Very mysterious. You can't really nail anything down. Like I said, if we knew a name of a ship, you can go find out who's the captain. Is it a cargo ship? What was it carrying? Yeah. So here, all we know is that a ship in one version of the story has tied up in the harbor to avoid the bad weather, waited out. And during that time, this dark, mysterious young man disembarks. Disembarks. Yeah. And I want to describe what the harbor's like. This is Slade Harbor. And for once, I get to say I've actually been somewhere or near somewhere similar oh. to what we're talking about, because I've been to Ireland, which I love. Beautiful, wonderful, amazing place. And um, I was not in this part of the country. I was over in Galway and Ballyvon. But in Ballyvon, there was a little harbor that when I saw the pictures of Slade Harbor, it's the exact same thing. It's not very big. It's got these really robust stone walls. The tides are pretty massive. There's a lot of distance between high tide and low tide. And you can tell that by looking at them. But when we say harbor, this is a small thing. You're not going to get a ton of ships in there, but it's well protected from bad weather. So when you think about this vessel coming into this, don't think about a monster giant schooner. This is more something that's going to be a little bit smaller. Like when you look in there and you see fishing boats in there, there's like 20 of them and it's full. So that's kind of the situation. Just to give yourself in your mind's eye a picture of what this looks like. And we have photos of Slade Harbor posted with this episode. You can take a look for yourself. So he disembarks from this and he goes up. Now, when you look on the map, you look on Google Earth, which we love to do and see the area we're talking about at Slade Harbor. And it's on the eastern side of the Hook Peninsula. You find that Loftus Hall, where our story takes place, is only about a mile as the crow flies to the northwest of Slade Harbor. And it's mostly farmland. It's sparsely populated. So in theory, especially back at this time in the late 1700s, somebody coming ashore there, not going to have a whole lot of obstacles between there and Loftus Hall. No, there aren't many trees at all. It's very windswept looking. If you just look at a still photo, you can see it's windswept. And it's said by the older ones there that no tree would grow beyond the wall. So it's so windswept, you just see a lot of open field. It's beautiful. It's a little bit barren, though. Yes. Very green, of course. But the only thicket of trees are the ones that I can see right next to the hall, at least back in the day. Yes. And there are some houses down by the harbor, but there's only a few. It's a very small area. At least it looks, it appears that way, even in modern photos. So somehow this guy gets a horse. And I really enjoyed Chris Rush's book. The way he portrayed it in his book, which we said is fictionalized too, he does some speculative stuff in there, is that he came across these horses that either wild or unbridled and kind of running around in the field and the upset by the storm in a circle. And the dark stranger just manages to get one to come over to him and let him climb on its back and ride in the pouring rain to Loftus Hall, which is pretty cool. Or he just went to a farm and saw horses there and asked the farmer if he could rent one. Yes. That's the other. <laughs> or he stole there. a horse or there's all kinds yeah. of different. All we know is that we think he went on a horse, although it's not a long walk. He could have walked. So No, but it is an important part of the story because a horse and the noise that a horse makes when you ride it figures prominently later on in the legend. This is Aaron saying hey to Dave when he's not trucking down the highway. He's listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. He gets this horse, supposedly. He rides the horse to Loftus Hall. Now, he shows up at Loftus Hall. It is pouring rain outside. And as Forrest just said, from inside the house, they hear a horse galloping up to the gates outside the house. The Lord of the Manor sends his servants out to find out who has arrived on such a dark and stormy night and is riding around on a horse in the rain. 
Chris Rush even posits in his book that he arrived bareback on the horse, no saddle or anything. So I really like that because that paints this guy as a master of beasts and uh, and people. Yeah, and people, among other things. He's master of everything. So they go out, they let the guy in. Turns out that he's very well dressed, although drenched, and he seems to be almost noble in nature. He's well versed. He's well educated. He's conversational. He's charming. And uh, well, as you said, well bred. He is a well bred station. Yes, and so charming. It's kind of that classic sort of benevolent narcissist personality. <laughs> Everybody wants to impress him and wants him to be their friend. So he comes in, he presumably gets dried off. They probably give him a room. They say, you know, get yourself together. We're playing some cards. Come on down and play cards with us and warm yourself up by the fire. So we should talk a little bit about who's in the house at this time. Now, according to the legend, the legend only talks about really Charles Tottenham or Charles Loftus and his wife, Anne. And then they had two daughters. Anne and Elizabeth. Elizabeth's not even in most of the accounts of the story, though, right? No, I thought you had found out that she had been married off by this point. Well, that's in Chris's book. I think that might be a supposition on his part. Right. There's not a whole lot of information about her. But what we do know in the version of the story that's depicted in the documentary, also called The Legend of Loftus Hall, the Rick Whelan documentary that you mentioned, there is Charles, Anne, the mother, and the daughter and then another set of adults who are over to play cards, Well, Baron Loftus, that's the lord of the manor, basically. In that version of the story, Baron Loftus and his second wife are the adults of the house present in the parlor playing cards. Joined with them are the Tottenhams, Charles, his wife, and daughter Anne, who were there to visit over Christmas, over the holidays. They came to stay there. So in that case, Baron would have to be... Anne's father and Charles's father-in-law. That's the only other Loftus that would be there. Possibly, yes. It's a little murky. It's that's a little murky. That's, that's what yeah. we're getting at. Yeah. There are four adults. I agree with the yeah. four adults. The right. only thing I'm saying is that Anne's father, who was Nicholas Loftus, the first Viscount of Eli, is the man who actually got the house, which we'll talk a little bit about the history of the house in a minute. Unfortunately, if this story does take place in 1765 or 66, he died two years earlier. So Mm -hmm. he couldn't have been there. If he was, it would have been weird. So, yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, who knows about this place? In the formation of a legend, the parts have to work. So in this scenario, there is no entertainment. It's a dreary winter. So there's not a lot going on. In the summer, there's a lot of activities, outdoor activities and fun stuff going on, hunting, that kind of thing. There's a bathing season. Mm. In this case... You're visiting over Christmas, and there's not much to do. You're inside in the evenings by candlelight and lantern, just enjoying what you can, which is cards every night. So to make the card game work, you have four people. This means that Anne, the daughter, she is off by herself doing needlepoint or reading, but basically not playing cards. She's bored to death. Imagine 21-year-old with her older parents and another older couple, and they're enjoying themselves. She's just bored silly. She's looking for any kind of diversion to happen along, and she's unattached. So it's suggested that she's like, man, I wish a guy would show up so I can get married and get out of here. Well, yeah, and she's probably also expected to be in the room, putting on a happy face. Yeah, of course. You can't be off in the other room playing with your iPad. Yeah. Uh, You have four people enjoying themselves, one young lady bored and on the outs, until the butler announces the arrival of the mysterious, handsome young gentleman. Right. So the young gentleman comes down and apparently joins in the card game or plays cards or, you know, shares their company. So now Anne has a partner for cards. Now there's six of them. 
And what better partner than a charming, mysterious, handsome young man? Charming as the devil, shall we say. Yes. And that does not go unnoticed. Everybody there notices that and seems almost obsessed. Like she's enchanted. And not only that, they're winning every hand. Yeah, that's another nice little touch of the story. Yeah. They can't be beaten. Somehow, he's almost like he's magical. Which is making the lord of the manor, Charles Loftus, look a little bit silly, because he should be the one winning all the games. (laughs) It's his house, it's his estate, and now he cannot beat this young stranger who's come in, and not, not only beating him at his own game, he is also charming his young daughter. Right. So they're noticing that Anne seems to be just swooning, but weirdly, yes, mysteriously, they are winning every hand. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of background on the Loftus family and who everybody is here, because Charles Loftus is actually Charles Tottenham, and Anne, his wife, Anne Loftus, because there's also Anne the daughter, there's two Annes, his wife is Anne Loftus, and it's her estate, really. But she's not allowed to have an estate. So what happens is that Charles Tottenham, if he wants to lay claim to the land and the house and the surrounding environs, he must take the Loftus name. So he marries Anne Loftus. And not only that, his name is now to be Charles Loftus, even though that was his wife's maiden name. Mm -hmm. He's married into this fortune, which is something we alluded to in the cold open. Not that he was broke prior to that, but this was much better circumstances for him. Now, the way that the house came to the Loftus family, who Charles married into, was that Nicholas Loftus got the hall after the Redmond family was evicted from the land much earlier. During the act of settlement after England claimed two-thirds of the Redmond family's properties, which we will get more into that later on. So the main legend unfolds in one of two ways from this point forward. One of the ways that you hear it, everything all takes place in one night when the guest arrives. The other version of the story has the guest sticking around for days and days, and there's a little more drama to it, but they both conclude the same way. So this is a fascinating about this. Now, behind door number one, we have the dark stranger, credit to Chris Rush for coming up with that title for our stranger enters the home, having sought safe harbor, and after presumably drying off, joins the family and possibly some neighboring friends for a game of cards, as we discussed a few minutes ago. Behind door number two, the second way that you hear the story, the dark stranger maybe joins them for a game of cards, impresses the family, and is invited to stay for several days until the weather calms and he can safely depart, returning to the sea. Now, during this time, the following series of events unfolds, culminating in his dramatic departure. First of all, as we said, 21-year-old Anne becomes very, very enamored with them. The stranger courts her and dazzles all that interfere with his charm. And this unfolds over several days. Uh, One of the things they might be doing is spending a lot of time in the tapestry room, which is a room that is very central to this legend and Loftus Hall in the bigger picture. She was apparently very fond of the tapestry room. There were lots of tapestries in there that had been gifted to the family, and she knew the history of all of them. So she may have had an artistic nature. So there's this idea that she's in the tapestry room with him a lot, and sometimes the door is closed, and there's some (laughs) ideas about what kind of nefarious things might be happening in the tapestry room. No, that's a necessary setup for one branch of the story that branches off in the general version of the story it's not needed because again that happens at one night of cards in that all this enchantment happens yes between Anne and the dark stranger in the other branch of the story that a relationship develops quickly 
but very strongly. Yeah, but yes. very strongly, so much so that she is very much locked into this guy. Yes, the stranger and Anne become very close and falls in love with him, really, even though he may not have her best interests at heart. Go figure on that. So after several days, we have the card game, or it's the same night. But no matter what, both versions of this story, and there's variations of all of them, but we're telling you the two bigger picture ones. At the end of it, there's a card game, again, in the game room or the card room where they're all playing. And things come to a head for whatever reason. And at some point, Anne drops some of her cards on the floor. There's varying types of circumstances that may have led to this. Well, one that I like is that the clock chimes, that startles her. She drops a few cards on the floor and looks underneath to retrieve them. Another version of the story is that she drops her ring under the table. But both, every version, she has to retrieve something from under the table. And there's yet another version from Chris Rush's book, which I greatly enjoyed, where Charles Loftus is becoming enraged at how much attention Anne is giving to the dark stranger. And in a heated discussion, he throws his cards down on the table. Some of the cards go off the table. And she, in an effort to smooth things over as quickly as possible, bends down to pick those cards up. Whatever one of those versions is true, when she is bent over... Recovering the cards, she glances over at the dark stranger's feet and sees a cloven hoof. At this point, she stands up, freaking out, backing away. She's in complete and total shock, almost having an instant nervous breakdown over the idea that this man or creature that is sitting next to her that she was so taken with has hooved cloven feet. And now the dark stranger begins maniacally laughing, a dark, evil laugh that fills the entire room. And he becomes engulfed in flames, actually turning into a ball of fire that shoots up out of the chair he was in, blasting through the high ceiling, going through the floor above, through the room that's above them, through that ceiling and the floor above that, and all the way up until he blasts through the roof of the three-story Loftus Hall. Anne goes into shock. She's falling down on the floor, completely freaked out. Rain is pouring down through the hole. Well, I think they're all freaked out at this point. Yeah, everybody's freaked out. They're all trying to figure out what has happened. No matter how you look at the story, no matter how the cards got on the floor, no matter Mm. whether it was the same night he arrived or five nights later, all the stories converge at this point about his departure. (laughs) We all want guests to leave at some point, but not in that matter. Yes. Especially causing a lot of damage. But that is the central part of the story is that There are witnesses to this. They all see this guy just burst into flame as a ball of fire shoot through the roof. Yeah. And of course, the most affected by this is Anne because she was falling in love with this guy, either in that night or over the course of several days and nights. So then the question becomes, what happens after this? I mean, he's gone, right? All's well that ends well. She'll recover. But unfortunately, she did not. From this point forward, she begins to quietly lose her mind. And there's stories that she may have been locked in the tapestry room for a wide variety of reasons. One of them being that she's going insane and they keep her in there because they're not sure how to manage her. Another one being that Charles Loftus locked her in there himself because he wasn't sure how to deal with it and he was concerned about appearances. Whatever the case, all of the stories indicate that she spent the rest of her days in the tapestry room, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. Some of them even say she got to a point where she sat down in a chair, psycho style, and just kept sitting to the point where she could no longer stand and that she was in a permanent seated position in the chair or in a fetal position on the floor, right? Sitting on the floor with her arms around her Uh, knees. Yes, but the romantic Victorian version is that she sat in the chair looking out the window of her favorite view 
waiting for the dark stranger to return, which he never did. Or did he? Nine years later, Anne Tottenham, the daughter of Charles and Anne Loftus, was dead. A classic tragedy. All right, well, let's go back and take a look at that card game. That playing cards with the devil idea is something that occurs more often in folklore than you'd think. Yeah, it's the classic gambling with the devil idea, really. It's right up there with, uh, it reminds me of Johnny in uh, that Charlie Daniels song. Uh, yeah. Devil went down to Georgia. <laughs> exactly. This story has a lot going for it in terms of Victorian romantic idealism in that he has an overwhelming effect on certain people. You know, he's the gothic, brooding, dark, and dangerous stranger that makes women swoon, like Lord Byron or Heathcliff, who came later. So you can see really good story elements to this tale of an encounter, but these are real people in a real place who have been documented. Everybody in this story lived and really died and is part of the history of Loftus Hall, somewhere in its very long timeline. So let's back up here and take a look at the historical timeline of this pretty magnificent place. Yeah, I have some questions about it. I'm hoping since you dug down on this, you might be able to answer them. I have one particular question, but I'm going to wait ah, until I we see. get through. I got all this information off of a roadside map that I <laughs> pieced together. At, yes, it took hours. But the idea is that this hall, this mansion, has a lot going for itself in its own history. It's not just this incident, which of course made it famous since that point in the late 1700s. You can back up to this piece of land here all the way to the fifth century, of course, and this peninsula. So what is Loftus Hall? It's a large mansion or country house or manor house, and it's located on the Hook Peninsula in County Wexford at the southeastern end of Ireland. The Hook Peninsula is very narrow. I mean, it's not... Real, real tiny, but it's only a couple of miles across, I believe, but it's a tiny spit of land if you were to look at it. And of course, there's a lot of uh, harbor port towns. And in these ancient times, it ends up being a very tactical place too for battle because it kind of straddles or is in between two port cities, which have a lot of military importance, but also commerce and just living. And so if you look at Loftus Hall today, it looks like any UK manor house, very rectangular. It looks kind of modern, but it has ancient roots to it. That location, I believe in this case, it's not one of those things where the original hall was 20 miles away and this was rebuilt and renamed. That manor house is, I believe, pretty much in the footprint of where the original edifice was. You yes. You call it a castle of sorts. There was a pre-existing structure. Exactly. That's going to get near to my question. But the thing about Loftus Hall is, I mean, it's very large and it's impressive in its size, and to a certain extent, stately, on the inside at least, but it's also very remote, and there wasn't a lot going on way out there in between skirmishes that took place on the property prior to the construction of the hall that's there today. And when I say skirmishes, I mean full-blown battles. But from what I understood from everything I read, kind of a little bit of a drafty hunting lodge in a way. <laughs> it's a place that yeah. you, you go that's out in the middle of nowhere. It's not Buckingham Palace or right. something like that. And it was supposedly, I think, modeled after a one of the Queen's summer homes it's yeah. cur in its current iteration. Yes, one of the owners later on down the line in the mid-19th century, John Henry Wellington Graham Loftus, mm. the fourth Marquess of Eli, was inspired to do his refurbishing of the house from Osborne House, the Queen's summer residence on the Isle of Wight. 
And he did a pretty good job. Queen Victoria. Exactly. Queen Victoria. He did a pretty good job, but he didn't get to enjoy it much. We'll get to that later. But it made the hall what it is today. And pretty much how you see it today is, is from his refurbishing at that time. East of it on the peninsula, you see Patrick's Bay. Mm-hmm. And on the south is Slade Harbor and the village of Churchtown. And at the very bottom tip of the peninsula, and this is pretty awesome for you Flannan fans, is the Hook Lighthouse, which is currently the world's oldest operational mm-hmm. Lighthouse and one of the oldest lighthouses in the world, period. Yes. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And if you're Irish, you say hook. It's the the hook Hook, lighthouse. The hook lighthouse. Uh, But yeah, so we're back to lighthouses, the Flannan Isles, Keith, the whole thing's connected. Yes. And terrible, terrible weather from the North Atlantic. Keith McCloskey. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Right. So that's part of it, this rough weather, because when you have that around a little peninsula and something near port towns that everybody's trying to get to, that are good places to live. Well, you need to protect from that treacherousness of the sea. But before we talk about the lighthouse, a couple of interesting facts about these little port towns and some of the towns that are around there. Well, a little over two and a half hours to the north is Dublin. And one hour by car to the northwest is the city of Waterford. Now, you've heard of Waterford Crystal, right? I have. I have a Waterford Crystal clock, I think, which sadly is a digital clock. Ah, very... (laughs) Like an old... Timex embedded in, I think it was a wedding gift. And right. I, I've been married right. a long time. So this is. <laughs> so it may yeah. have been from this era here <laughs> when the Waterford Crystal factory started up. That would be 1783. You're probably not that old. No. But Thanks. it's a very famous manufacturer of crystal. Also, purportedly, this is the oldest city in Ireland. Waterford. Yeah. So it's a seaport in Southeast Ireland, and it was founded by the Vikings in 914 AD. And there's still evidence of the original city, right? Yes, within its walled core. And within Reginald's Tower, which was built in around 1003, it's kind of a a fortification. There's a museum of treasures and local archaeological finds. So it's pretty interesting that it's got such rich history, but it shows you how long that area has been occupied. Because that Peninsula, the Hook Peninsula, wasn't a huge population center, but there's been people there since the 5th century. And one of the earliest settlements on the peninsula was founded by the person who first put a lighted beacon there to warn ships. You're going to say this guy's name, right? Because I'm not yeah. saying this. Durfwan? Durfwan. Oh, that's pretty uh, good. Was it? Was that? D, it's spelled, just so <laughs> folks know, D-U-B-H-A. Apostrophe A. Yeah, with an accent in. D-U-B, it looks like Dubhan. Yeah, Dubhan. But, but, but it's, it's Irish Gaelic, a bunch of letters you don't pronounce. Yeah. So to me, it sounded like Durfwan. I'm going to say yes. I have no idea. Excellent. Well, sometime in the fifth century, he was a Welsh monk and he established a monastery just north of the current lighthouse where the medieval church of St. Savior stands. But he was the first one to light a fire beacon there. And eventually that turned into Hook Lighthouse. But his followers considered him a saint, and they kept that fire beacon maintained and burning for over seven centuries. That is so amazing to Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah, he made an impression on the folks. They yeah. kept up the tradition, but it was very much needed because, again, that's a very Dangerous treacherous... Spot. Yes. Lots of shipwrecks, lots of terrible bad weather. Uh, he also kind of gave his name to the area because Durfwan is the Irish word for a fishing hook. Ah, apparently so. I got that off of a tourist website. The waters are so dangerous around there. It's actually called the Graveyard of a Thousand Ships, which reminds me of North Carolina. Yeah. The coast off of North Carolina is called the Graveyard of the Atlantic. So this is the Graveyard of a Thousand Ships. And again, it sounds a lot like if you go back to our series on the Flannan Isles, it sounds a lot like the waters around the Flannan Isles. In fact, and this is pretty amazing, we're going to be talking about a documentary tonight where you can see a shot 
of this rock that was put on the beach by a storm in 1940. It is estimated to be 50 tons. Yeah. The storm washed a 50-ton rock up onto the shore. So that's pretty amazing. The Hook Lighthouse is only about, it's only about a mile from Loftus Hall. Now, I found a pretty cool little website here, a Dokara, which means your friend in, in Gaelic. D-O-C-H-A-R-A. Right. It's the Insider Guide to Ireland. And it talks also about this lighthouse, saying that the monks were still there when the Norman Lord Raymond Le Gros built the first tower here in 1172. And it was enlarged later by building a larger tower outside the existing one. The winding stairway, which leads to the top, is between the walls of the new and the old towers. So that's the original structure that was built to be the lighthouse in 1172 as a better structure. Before that, it was probably just a giant pile of uh, burning uh, wood or whatever they could find to burn there. It's not a lot there. When you see photos of it, it's not like it's uh, an English countryside manor where it's a thicket of trees all around. It's beautiful, but it is kind of barren. So it's like a lot of flat green grasses and uh, lots of wind. (laughs) (laughs) But the monks continued to light the beacon until 1641, which was a prominent year in Irish history, as we'll learn, when they left and then the lighthouse kind of went out. But after that, of course, there was a series of shipwrecks. And 25 years later, it was said to be reopened by order of Charles II and has been going since then. How unfortunate do you have to be to be one of those people that was born at the time (laughs) during that quarter century when you're just going to bite the dust if you get near there in your boat, you know? It's like there was a light before (laughs) for 700 years. Yeah. Then it went out, tons of wrecks. Sorry, we're relighting it. (laughs) There's a 25-year period of figuring that out, but hey. Well, as we're about to see in 1641, things got a little turbulent and not great, but it is an essential part of Irish and English history, and you can probably imagine why they left. But the lands around Loftus Hall have seen more than their fair share of bloodshed and warfare, and maybe that informs why it is considered such a haunted hotspot, just the hall itself. I mean, it has a lot of history of families growing up like all families do, but over the years, yeah, it's uh, seen a lot of blood spilled there. So as we were saying, in 1170, just three miles from Loftus Hall, 3,000 local men were killed during the Norman invasion and resulting battle that happened there. A Norman warlord commander named Raymond, or Redmond, you can see how that name might transform over yes. the centuries? Yeah. Raymond, or Redmond Fitzgerald, or as he was known, Raymond Le Gros, his French nickname meaning the large. That's the current politically correct adaptation of it. I did read in (laughs) some older books, it was the fat, Raymond (laughs) the fat, yeah. Well, there was Pippin the fat. Yeah. I don't think that they cared as much if you were fat back then, because it meant you were well-fed and probably wealthy. Yeah, He was like, well, look at that guy. All right, go, you go, dude. Yeah. He's chubby. Well, Raymond Le Gros, or Redmond Fitzgerald landed at a place that is now known as Baganbun Beach, about nine kilometers or a little over five and a half miles northeast of Loftus. And Baganbun is named after Le Gros' two ships, Le Bag et Le Bon. Oh, that's creative. Well, that's to them. That's what it sounded like. So. That's like, again, <laughs> I don't know why I keep coming back to Raleigh, but my grandmother used to live in this neighborhood <laughs> called Beccana. And it was oh. for Becky, the guy who developed it, named it for his daughters, Becky and Anna. Well, there you go. People Beck just Anna. pick the, stu- the, the, <laughs> the easiest stuff. It's like yeah. I think North Dakota, there's a town called Can-Do because of the Can-Do attitude. Like, nice. They just went with that. Fine. Can-Do. Good enough. Well, that battle was meant to safeguard the arrival of Richard de Clare 
And his nickname was Strongbow. See, everybody's got a cool Strongbow. nickname back then. Yeah. <laughs> Strongbow was, is way better than Raymond the Large. Yeah, unless you're just a big, scary dude, then that's what you want. Yeah, that's preceding. True. I mean, look at the mountain. <laughs> exactly. So Richard DeClaire was the second Earl of Pembroke, and his arrival to Ireland would be the preparation for the Anglo-Norman invasion of Ireland. So they were getting ready to take over the place, and Raymond the Large, Redmond, arrived and killed about 3,000 people there just to make sure that they didn't have a battle once Richard arrived. For people who are historically challenged, such as myself, yeah. what is the one sentence sum up of what the Anglo-Norman invasion was trying to accomplish? Thank you. <laughs> but the, seriously, what is it? We can just say Anglo-Norman invasion. Nobody knows what it means. For people who don't know. What's like funny me. is that we were talking I mean, about I this sort of earlier. Know, but... And first off, if you've ever looked into the history of Northern and Western Europe and the UK, it's all very, very confusing <laughs> because there has been so much invasion and assimilation of one ethno-cultural or ethno-linguistic European group over another, or more, I guess more properly, transcultural diffusion that over time, everyone's basically been blended together while generally forming their own national cultural identities. Not only that, their rulers have intermarried to form post-war treaties and alliances, so an ethnic group may not be ruled by an ethnicity of their own. For example, King George V changed the name of the British royal family from the German Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, or Gotha, to the English name of Windsor, along with giving up any German crown titles, in an attempt to draw attention away from their German heritage due to the high anti-German sentiment during World War I. Also, King George's first cousin was Nicholas II, the Emperor of Russia. So, you get the idea? <laughs> it's like, who's who? What? Uh, yeah, it's complicated. That's it, what the Facebook page would say. It, it, yes, I think uh, <laughs> the symbol for that is a pineapple. Right. And it would have been next to his name on his page. So here is your sentence. The one, one sentence. That's all I asked yeah, for was one sentence. It's a really, really long sentence. A paragraph. Okay. Right. <laughs> oh, there's a few of that. Yeah. I'll do the best I can here. So okay. at the time of our story, the 1100s, Gaelic Ireland was comprised of various small kingdoms, each ruled over by several over-kingdoms. And at the top was the High King, and during this time it was Rory O'Connor. That'd be the anglicized version of the Gaelic pronunciation, which again, a bunch of letters I'll never get to right. pronounce, <laughs> pronounce correctly. Well, he took tribute from the lesser kings, but he didn't really rule over Ireland as a unified nation yet. So it's a lot of, I guess, little fiefdoms maybe. Our nearby port towns of Waterford, remember we're talking about that, and Wexford, along with the other three port towns of Dublin, Cork, and Limerick were Norse Irish towns, and they had their own rulers. Well, the Anglo-Norman invasion of Ireland didn't happen all at once. It took place in stages, with each ceding huge tracts of land away from the Irish. In 1169, with the backing of King Henry II of England and the blessing of Pope Adrian IV, he was the only English pope, ah. Anglo-Norman mercenaries invaded Ireland at the behest of the ousted King of Leinster, Dermot. But Mulroney? From a Young Guns? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> He's done no. other stuff since then. I'm showing my age with the yeah. Young Guns reference here. No, Dermot McMurrah. McMurrah. I, I was waiting for you to say Mulroney because that's the only one we know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, King Dermot McMurrah, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, wanted to get his kingdom back. So King Dermot and the Norman mercenaries were successful in taking back Leinster, then started invading neighboring kingdoms. Sounds yes. like an amazing game of risk. <laughs> it is. <laughs> you know what? I can't think of a movie that's been done. I'm sure there would be. It's quite epic. Yeah. But yes, it's a lot of back and forth. 
which is what the story is here. So then, as we mentioned, there were two other Norman landings that we referenced, and those happened in the summer of 1170, one with Richard Strongbow de Clare taking control of Leinster and also seizing those Norse-Irish lesser kingdoms of Waterford, Wexford, and Dublin. So he's got control of all those now. The High King Rory O'Connor tried to fight off the Normans later that summer, but the Normans held their conquered territories. Okay. So King Henry II of England had landed in Ireland in 1171 with a large force in order to take rule over the Anglo-Normans and the Irish. The Norman warlords ceded their captured lands to Henry, as well as the many lesser Irish kings yielding to Henry, hoping that he'd tamp down the Norman expansion. But that didn't happen, and Henry left in 1172, and the Irish kept fighting off the ever-expanding Normans. So was, Henry was only yeah. there for a year? I think so. Basically, he wanted to take control because, hey, you let these guys in, they captured a lot of lands. Now you don't want them getting out of hand. Right. So you have to go establish your control over them. What a and, mess. And he, put, you know, he puts their foot down on their neck, but they get to keep their lands. Right. And that eventually leads to a treaty, the Treaty of Windsor in 1175. And that established Henry II as overlord of conquered Irish lands and High King Rory O'Connor as overlord of the rest of Ireland. But O'Connor had to swear fealty to Henry. But the treaty fell apart, of course, and soon the Irish were back to fighting off furthering Anglo-Norman expansion into their kingdoms. Then King Henry endorsed more conquering of Irish lands by Norman lords and declared his son John to be Lord of Ireland with those held territories becoming the Lordship of Ireland and forming a part of the Angevin Empire. That back right. then you could just declare somebody to be... Yeah, hey, you, hey, you like, I declare you, like you Ireland? the king of all this. <laughs> you like it? It's really green. It's, it's lovely. You want it? Yeah. Let me go grab it. So yeah, everybody's invading everything. And there were a few reasons for invading Ireland besides warlords getting new, lush, beautiful lands of their own because everybody loves that, right? Yeah. So yes, one was that the king, Henry, wanted to grant Ireland to his brother William, but his mother, Empress Matilda, put a stop to that. And then the Anglo-Norman church leaders wanted to establish control over the Irish church as a way of promoting Gregorian reforms and getting them to abandon their pre-Christian Gaelic customs, mm. which they looked down on as semi-pagan. Also, after the Anglo-Norman invasion, the ruling elite in England started to view their Irish Celtic neighbors as crude, semi-pagan, and impious barbarians. And when you start to see others as lesser, you feel better about taking what they have. Justification. Oh, there you go. See, so it's like, well, they're not as classy as us. We should just go grab their lads. Yeah. So here's a little fun bit. You were kind of asking me before we started recording here, I think uh, the other day, like, who are all these people? Yeah, who are all these people? The combatants, the belligerents, and the defenders with all their hyphenated names. Well, in ancient Gaelic Ireland, you had Celtic culture that originally burst from Central Europe and expanded into Ireland. Then you have the Anglo-Normans, who were England's medieval ruling class, and they were comprised of ethnic Anglo-Saxons, who were comprised of ethnic Germanic tribes, the Angles and the Saxons, mixed with indigenous British groups like the Celtic Britons, and the other groups making up the Anglo-Normans were the Normans, who were an ethnic group that arose in Normandy and the northern region of France and resulting from contact between indigenous Franks, more Germanic peoples, and Gallo-Romans, or French Romans, and Norse Viking settlers from Denmark, Norway, and Iceland. So, you got all that? So the quiz is open book, right? <laughs> be, I, like, I would say don't look at any book about all this. <laughs> it's probably wrong. But. That's really, I mean, talk about the blender of cultures. I mean, well, it's that's the on idea. high. It's yeah. on puree. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's the idea. Yeah, it's just very indicative of the history of Europe in general and the UK in that 
starting in Central Europe with the Celts and them expanding and then the Romans and over 2000 years, you have such a mishmash of peoples blending and coming in. I think a lot of people today would just see like, well, the, the French are French and the English are English, right? And the Irish, they're their own thing and the Scots. Well, they've all, uh, they're all kind of like a big Venn diagram <laughs> to bring that up again. <laughs> and we've settled into our own national identities, but really at the heart of it are these cultural identities and who got taken over by whom. This, by the way, folks, is why our show is so long. Forrest thinks that whole explanation is one sentence. Hi, I'm Amanda Snyder, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. Well, one source says Raymond Legros, or Raymond Fitzgerald, as he's also known, had been awarded lands, or he just claimed the lands after his victory, after he killed 3,000 guys there. He said, yeah. I'm just going to take this. Spoils of war. Yeah, and this is in County Wexford, and then that is the land on which he built the hall at Houseland near Portersgate. And another source says that the Norman warlord was named Alexander Fitzredmond, who also awarded himself the lands, and then he built an estate, he named that Redmond Hall. But I think Raymond Legros or Raymond Fitzgerald is probably more of the generally accepted person who, who built the hall there. Instead of Alexander Fitzredmond. But it's really hard to tell. It's a little Again, fuzzy. Names are, are... Yeah, names were very loose-backed. And like I said, your name could be Raymond. That gets transmuted into Redmond yeah. over the years. And at, after a while, people just call you the large. Right. So you're just more generally known <laughs> as Legros. Well, for 500 years, whoever built it, his descendants enjoyed their peerage and ruling privileges until the arrival of Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell. So just another note on that house, I think sometime around the Black Death, so that'd be the 1350s, it's thought that the Redmond family rebuilt their original castle, but they did it on the same spot. So that was right. my point earlier that now this we're same getting... spot has been home to what will eventually become Loftus Hall. And we're getting to one of my primary questions about all this, which is when did the first, because there's two structures that we're talking about right. on the same place. Yes. Because I read in our research varying things about what percentage of the first structure was part of the second structure. Right. Some were saying that the first structure was completely raised. Others were saying that I believe the current owner of the home believes that some of the walls were common mm -hmm. between the existing structure and the first structure. And there's definitely ruins from the outer parts. There's a ring from where a castle tower was. Right, right. They call it the ring field where yes. that ring is, mm -hmm. which that's definitely left over from the first structure. So I guess the question is, is Loftus Hall and Redmond Hall, do they have any common interior walls? And also the other question that I still have forced, and maybe you can tell me this, is which hall did our story take place in? It took place in Loftus Hall, right? Yes, right, okay. right. So After, it took place in the second structure. Yeah, right. it would be when it was less castle-like and more manor-like. Right. Because that was in the 1700s. So yes, our story the takes ladder, place exactly. several hundred years after the second structure was built. Right. But before the refurbishing in the 19th century, in the 1870s. Right. So where it got, it got a significant interior upgrade. Right. Yeah. So the condition of the hall in the time of our story, the time of the devil's story here, it was okay, but it was dilapidated. I mean, right. it wasn't its heyday. Plus, you got to realize it's seen a lot of warfare over the years. That place took a beating. Yeah, over sure. the centuries, because sure. again, it starts off as a castle residence, but also somewhat of a fortress. If you'll see some sketches of it or what it's thought to be, it is more castle-like. 
and uh, defensible. Yes. And you didn't really need that as much. And it was an entirely different facade. It's not like you look at it and then you look at Loftus Hall and you say, oh, I can see some common architectural features. There are none. Right, so right. the question is, you know, I'm basing all this on one ancient drawing of the original structure yeah. that was, you know, went away in the 1300s. Right. But there's no way to really know if maybe there's an interior, some common interior walls that still stood. My understanding is if the ring from the castle tower, from the first structure, mm -hmm. from Redmond Hall, is out in a field, then that would indicate if there is any common walls or any common relationship between the two structures, right. that Loftus Hall is actually on a reduced footprint. Because Possibly, if the yeah. ring is out in a field, then mm -hmm. it's either on a reduced footprint or it's moved over. Yeah. But I think we know it's on the same pad or the same location. So to me, it would seem like the original castle, right. Redmond Hall, was larger and then maybe reduced. And then right. the question becomes, is there any common material in between? Which, and the reason that I ask this is yeah. because it, it begs... Stone tape like, theory? Stone tape, paranormal, <laughs> whatever. But it's vague. The thing is, this history is all kind of vague about how these two structures coexisted or didn't, or, and the relationship between the first one and the second one. Right. See, there's fairly good records uh, that you have with the family pedigree or the family histories of the Redmonds. Sure. They kept track of different things, but you got to wonder about the person taking the notes or who's ascribing that if that's really happened, because you're talking about centuries here. Yeah. And history's written by the women. <laughs> right. Indeed. Well, Raymond Legros, being the first guy there in the 1100s, you know, that structure just technically is going to be a lot different than something built in the 17th century, in the right. 1600s. Sure. And our next part of the story takes place here. So for over 500 years, it's been occupied. That's a long time for one family or one family lineage to occupy the same place. At the same time, though, I believe you're right. There are differences of opinion what's left or what's been borrowed from the original structure. Because as we know, like with Spolia, the people showing up later often use the same building materials and just rearrange them because it's a lot easier than quarrying new stone. Mm -hmm. But there are some ancient structures around there, and I think it's very likely that it is sitting on pretty much the same, as you say, pad with a different facade, a different outing, but maybe the same base stones. It's, that place has no basement in it. Right now, it's three stories. But it would be a lot easier to just use the same footprint. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So, like I said, there are differences of opinion. But what we do know is that the hall, as it was known then, or sometimes more like Redmond Hall, but certainly not Loftus Hall. That name didn't take even after the guy, one of the Loftus sons, named it that. It, it took a long time for that to stick. Sure. So it was just kind of known as the hall, because if you see, it's like the, the biggest structure around on the peninsula. That's like when Kentucky Fried Chicken tried to change their name to KFC. KFC. It took a while. But yeah, it took it a minute. It, it, it eventually <laughs> stuck. The hall would be attacked by soldiers a number of times over the years since its founding. So in 1641... The Irish Confederate Wars had started with fighting taking place in Wexford, and that's only about 27 miles to the northeast, and that was in full swing by 1642. There was an English garrison at Duncannon Fort on Waterford Harbor, only about seven miles to the northwest, which by February of 1642 had around 300 men occupying it. Now, Irish Confederates had attacked a patrol of soldiers from the Duncannon garrison, and the English soldiers retreated to the fort. So that's kind of starting a little bit of a skirmish here that's going to continue and really involve the hall here. Well, Captain Thomas Aston, he was a co-commander of the reinforcements to the garrison at Duncannon Fort, must have been well aware of Loftus Hall, which was Redmond Hall at the time. 
And he also must have been very well aware that the current owner of the hall, Alexander Redmond, was an Irish rebel sympathizer, and that the hall was often used to provide assistance to the Irish Confederates. Well, that gave him, Captain Aston, a reason to take over the hall, and he believed he could do it easily with 90 men and two small cannon. So he left by ship from Duncannon to Redmond Hall on July 20th, 1642. Well, talk about a guy who was clearly in better shape than I am now. <laughs> 68 Much younger years than old. this guy. 68 yeah. years old when he barricaded his hall in preparation for an attack by the English, and there were only 10 men in all to defend it, armed with bird hunting rifles. His two sons, Robert and Michael, a couple of men with military training, some tenants of the property, and a traveling tailor who just happened to be at the house when the attack happened. Imagine that guy surprised yeah. <laughs> You show up for a job, now you're in battle. Um, yes, I know you're working on the tapestries, but uh, <laughs> would you mind helping us out in this gun battle? Yeah, so he had to join in, but people were a lot hardier back then. So yeah. Why not? You know, got nothing else going Let's on. Let's fight. <laughs> uh, so Captain Aston arrives at the front door of the hall, demands to be let in in the name of the king. Alexander Redmond responded, saying he would let in Captain Aston, but only if he left his soldiers and weapons behind. Aston refused, and thus began a long and drawn-out gun battle. Around half of Aston's men deserted him to go pillaging, and his cannons were too small to knock down the front door. Not only that, a fog or heavy mist from the sea had rolled in and hampered the attack. And this fog, from everything I read, it came up really suddenly. So that probably almost felt like an act of God. Uh, it was and, strange, yeah. Yeah, and but, then on top yeah. of that, the building is strong. It's really well fortified, so it's, yeah. it's very hard to attack. Well, old man Redman here, he also employed a clever tactic a defensive tactic, which one, I'm kind of impressed because he's 68. Yeah. And he's got all of his marbles. Yeah. He's uh, thinking this through. He's greatly outnumbered, but he employs a very clever defensive tactic. And he had large, heavy bags of wool hung up in the windows and in the breaches made by the cannonball fire. That would be the, the holes that were punched through the walls where they were. Now, this stopped many of the musket balls fired by the English troops, which were then fished out of the wool and fired back at them. And this proved to be successful enough, this tactic, that three wool sack icons have ended up on the Redmond family crest. All so right. if you look at their family crest, yeah. you'll see, like, it's what are those, three pillows? Like, uh, okay, yeah, I, I was a little confused by that <laughs> right. crest when I first saw it. Right. So I didn't know that's what that was. Interesting. It proved to be uh, a saving grace to him, at least for this battle. But they got some help also, because while this lengthy battle was underway, Irish Confederates under the command of Captains Roche and Rossiter, and you remember Captain Rossiter, he's being one of the commanders of the Irish Confederates who attacked the party of English soldiers from Duncannon Fort in the first place, well, they had heard of the attack on the hall and they rushed to their defense. And using the heavy sea mist as cover, the Irish soldiers were able to surprise the hall's attackers and rout them. Mm. The English Captain Aston was killed in the counterattack, and... Many others were taken prisoner, including the nephews of the garrison commander at Duncannon Fort, Lord Esmond. Around 30 of the English soldiers were able to retreat back to the fort, but the next day, on Captain Roche's orders, a number of the English prisoners were hanged, and later on, 11 prisoners were hanged, including one of Lord Esmond's nephews. Ooh. These guys weren't playing around. Yeah, yeah they were yeah. Uh, They were playing for keeps here, and they had no compunction about uh, hanging prisoners. Well, everything's uh, on, on the line. On both sides, yeah. yeah everything's so, on the line. Exactly. It's, it's the patrimony, the whole, like, your land, your castle, everything you own. Right. If you lose this, I mean, not only are you going to lose your life, but all your foregoing generations will get nothing. You are there trying to protect what you've worked so hard for that's going to 
belong to your kids, kids and kids and their kids and grandkids and great grandkids for generations. And oh, it, well, so you've got nothing to lo- You have to fight for everything. Yeah, well, that's kind of what happened to the Redmond family later on. But the attack on this future Loftus Hall is connected to the Wars of the Three Kingdoms and the Cromwellian Conquest of Ireland, or what's known as the Cromwellian War in Ireland. And that took place from 1649 to 1653. Whereas we said before, the future Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland converted Puritan Oliver Cromwell had invaded Ireland, leading his new model army of the English Parliament. So with the Irish Rebellion starting in 1641, Cromwell and the English Parliamentarian Army had defeated the Irish Confederates and their allies, the English Royalists, and occupied Ireland, ending the Irish Confederate Wars, also known as the Eleven Years' War, by 1652. Now, Cromwell's conquest was brutal on the Irish people, with some estimating the drop in population anywhere from 15 to 83 percent, with around 50,000 Irish transported as indentured laborers. The war had caused a famine, and on top of that, an outbreak of bubonic plague popped up. Now, Cromwell's series of penal laws against Roman Catholics, which was the majority of the population, saw confiscation of vast amounts of their land, which is what I was alluding to earlier. Right, right. Yeah, needless to say, Cromwell is still a hated figure in Ireland to this day. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, have you ever heard the phrase, by hook or by crook? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a very old English phrase, meaning essentially, by any means necessary, or one way or the other. And legend has it that that's what Oliver Cromwell said about taking the port town of Waterford. As one of the ideas about where the phrase came from is because of Hookhead in Wexford and the nearby village of Crook, or maybe Crook, Crook. in Waterford, Ireland. So Crookhead is on the opposite side of the sewer, it's S-U-I-R, estuary from Hookhead. So they are the two points that guard the entrance to the port. And eventually Cromwell did achieve, by hook or by crook, the taking of Wexford. Well, there you go. Well, again, as I said before, if you look at the Redmond family pedigree, or it's their family history, their records, they claim that Alexander Redmond had to defend the hall against English soldiers one or two more times in 1649 during the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland. And Alexander Redmond would eventually have to surrender to Cromwell, although it's said that he received favorable terms from him, meaning that uh, he didn't get such a bad deal, even though he had to surrender his house to uh, the English, essentially. Uh, He was allowed to live there, and Redmond died in the hall in 1650 or 1651. However, after that, though, his family was evicted and had to give up two-thirds of their original County Wexford family estates in the Act of Settlement put down by the English Parliament. After the surviving Redmond family was evicted from their hall, they went to live at Fettered Castle, which was first the residence of the Nicholas Loftus family, who had acquired the manor of Fettered on Sea in 1634. So now the Loftuses enter the picture. And this is just, I feel bad for these folks. You know? <laughs> well, well, no, that's what you're Everything talking about. Everything you have is ours. Yeah, essentially. We're coming in and uh, you have to get out. Yeah. And There ain't a whole lot you can say. You can kind of contest it with the courts, but things were a little looser back then, shall we say, and things were taken by might. Well, Nicholas Loftus later purchased then Redmond Hall from, quote, I love this, several adventurers and soldiers. So it sounds like there was a bit of squatting, as I said, taken by force, Loftus Hall or Redmond Hall at the time. And it's like, well, can I just pay you when you guys leave? It's like, all right. Mercenaries. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody (laughs) had occupied the building by force because the people who have guns make the rules. Well, what happened to the Redmond family? Well, they kind of disputed that claim of the Loftus family in court, but they didn't have much success. 
they were compensated with other lands in the barony of Bologkeen in the north of County Wexford. So some of their descendants got some land, but they still got kicked out. So like I said, you can complain, but you didn't have much say. The Redmond's descendants went to court to try to fight this, to try mm -hmm. to hang on to the land. Right. It was the, I guess the son of one of the Redmonds, I can't remember how old he was, he was pretty young. And so he had a hard time fighting it in court and was unable to get the property back that should have been rightfully his. It should have come down to him through his family. Mm -hmm. He later was actually captured in a, a battle. And I think he was only in his 20s at some point, And he was hanged. And yeah. he was also the last of the line. So oh, that's, it's a yes, really that's right. sad story because, yeah. you know, they came and I, I mean, and I don't know anything about these folks' character. Maybe they weren't nice people, but mm. I, I don't know that. But what I guess what I'm saying is, you know, they, they came, Cromwell took their property, then the Loftuses got it, they fought to get it back, and then the last descendant of that line of Redmonds is like, please, you know, he's, yeah. he's going to court, he loses it, and then he gets captured in battle and hanged in an unjustified way from what I remember, the circumstances were. So it's, it's a bad scene. So not only did he lose all the property, but when you think about his father and their father's father, their whole line, not only did it end, they lost everything. They lost their property, they lost their offspring, their mm -hmm. name, all of it gone. Yeah, like we said, people did things very brutally and decisively and often by force, and they often did things to make a point. It's also an example, in if you think of the world in a spiritual way, and good and evil and karma and all that, there's some bad mojo for that <laughs> piece of property. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. It's bad mojo. So in light of that, people making big statements, old Oliver Cromwell got his comeuppance, but after his death, he died of natural causes. <laughs> but the royalists who had returned to power, along with King Charles II, wanted to make a statement of how much they hated him. And in 1660, they had his corpse dug up, hung in chains, and they beheaded it. Man, that is, That's that you are statement. some kind of ticked off. <laughs> you're going to dig up a dead guy and then hang it. Just to make a Man, point. Man, yeah. that's bad. That's well, bad. he was pretty brutal on the country of Ireland. And now there's a lot of debate to this day about, you know, did he go over the line? Was he aware of brutalities happening? Was it in line with the acts of war? So there are arguments on both sides, but he did come in and he was uh, the hammer of the Catholics, they could say. So being a Puritan, he was fairly lenient on the Protestants, or at least tolerant of them. And the Catholics, which was most of the country of Ireland, got the raw deal. Yeah. Well, the Loftus family originally came to Ireland from England, and they were planters, or you could call them new colonists, sometime around 1590 when Sir Dudley Loftus was granted lands in the region, and one of his heirs, Nicholas Loftus, was granted lands in County Wexford after the Cromwellian conquest in this act of settlement. But the Loftus family didn't live in the hall until Nicholas's son, Henry Loftus, moved there in 1666. That'd be 1666. Yeah. <laughs> Making it the Might official... be an important number <laughs> for this story. I don't know, but it's interesting to note. Well, this made it the primary family residence at this point. And Henry, he made the name Loftus Hall official by inscribing his name in the stone entrance in the piers there at Porter's Gate. Okay, then. But like we said earlier, it took a while for the name Loftus Hall because people were still calling it Redmond Hall or just the Hall. Right. Well, Henry Loftus did major repair work on Loftus Hall in 1684. So he did a lot of patchwork, probably because, as we said, it had seen so much warfare over the previous years that a couple of centuries of that, it starts to run down the place. 
So Henry Loftus did kind of shore up the place for the later generations. So now we arrive at the date of which our card-playing devil shows up on the scene. And a couple of sources say 1765, 1766 right. was when this happened. It was supposedly taking place or took place around Christmas. We know that that's part of the story. I remember thinking that that was weird. That it was that it was just 10 years before America's very, very <laughs> yeah. important date of 1776. Yeah, a lot of That happening. made it feel more recent to me for some reason. That's what we know, right? Because we gauge our history timeline in a little shorter span than the English and the Irish because their span, of course, is much, much longer. Yes. You know, so it's interesting. It does make a difference in the context. But in the context of this hall, that is when the story takes place, this story about the young man stranger showing up and having an impact on the family and the hall itself, as it seems. I'm Brock Randolph, and when I'm not listening to Astonishing Legends, I'm wishing I was listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, back to the show. So the story that's at the crux of tonight's episode took place in 1766, or 65 or 66, as mm -hmm. near we can tell. Then after that, there's not a whole lot going on. Baron Loftus of Loftus Hall, from the story, he was actually made the first Earl of Eli. Then he was granted the title Marquess of Eli in 1800. The former Baron's descendant, the fourth Marquess of Eli, is the one who did a major restoration and refurbishing of the existing structure of the hall from 1872 to 1884, so for 12 years. And that essentially is the house that you see today. Yeah, that's kind of its final form here. Yeah, uh, and, and the, that's really... What the really, fourth Marquess did, yeah. Yeah, and that's really more about the inside than the outside. Right. The fourth Marquess of Eli, the most honorable John Henry Wellington Graham Loftus, with the guidance of his mother, Lady Jane Hope Vare Loftus, a lady-in-waiting to Queen Victoria, commissioned the staircase of the house as a centerpiece item. He'd hoped to impress one of the daughters of Queen Victoria with his opulence, whom he wanted to marry. The stairs took nine years to carve in Italy and three years to assemble in the main hall. There aren't too many opulent furnishings left in the hall today, but the magnificent staircase remains and is considered priceless. Yeah, when you see pictures of it, it's very ornate and just a magnificent amount of carving. Very detailed, it's very uh, gorgeous. Artisan. Yeah, yeah, it's like a center staircase and it splits off to the left and right up high. It actually mimics the shape of the crucifix, but more on that later. Yeah, there are some elements of the house that were built in that seem very protective and maybe for a reason that ties into the possible credibility of something powerfully supernatural and not good happening at the hall. Yeah. Now, sadly, Queen Victoria never came to visit, and the family did not get to enjoy it much. No. John Henry died at a young age and without an heir. He left the hall to his cousin, and with the hall being in a poor financial state, the cousin put it up for sale. However, the fourth Marquess, John Henry and his mom, added a lot of the stylish elements to the hall along with the staircase like lavish parquet flooring, a mosaic tiled floor, and flush toilets and blown air heating, things that were not common at all in Irish houses at the time. Right, and as we said earlier, he got these inspirations from Queen Victoria's summer house in the right. Isle of Wight. Right. So he did as best he could, but I think the extensive reno sunk his pocketbook there. It didn't... Uh, turn out to be, uh, he couldn't flip the house. As, really uh, much, so. as someone who has remodeled a home, let that be a lesson <laughs> to you. Yeah, well, that's, it happens throughout history. You get these ideas of what you want to do with it, 
and you have some money and yeah. it turns into quite a larger financial obligation than you had planned. And takes five times longer than you thought. And then right after it gets finished, you die. Yeah. <laughs> that can so, happen. Yeah, the money yeah, pit. Yeah. Well, and fortunately, he met an early end, but he left the hall in a decent enough state that it remained until the 20th century in a decent enough fashion that it could be used. Because in 1917, Loftus Hall was sold to the Sisters of Providence in order of Benedictine nuns, and they took up residence there. However, the rumor is they didn't stay very long, and it's unknown why they left so quickly. Yeah. We don't know, but maybe they had some trouble. Also, it could activity. have just been drafty. It could have just, they could have had just other plans that happens. Yeah. But who did stay for a while were the Rosminian sisters who were an order of nuns and they moved into the hall and opened a school for girls who were interested in joining the order. And they were successful for more than 40 years there. Yeah. So it's not all dark and evil and, and a vortex, but definitely there's been a ton of reported paranormal activity there, of course since that time. I don't know about before that. There's no records of that. No, but we're going to be talking to somebody who can tell us about the ongoing paranormal activity. Yeah, which is what I wanted to hear about firsthand. What's going on there today? Because there's really not much record before the story, and that would have been 1765 or 66. Prior to that, you know, again, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of death. You had one dude who was the patriarch, Alexander Redmond, dying in the house. It could be like a Sally house. Like, how many people are floating around here? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Because yeah. the other night, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I thought about this phenomenon, this idea of multiple spirits, and I yeah. decided that it's a ghost party. That's what I'm going to call it. Mm. Ghost party. I like that. Yeah. Well, I don't. <laughs> there's the idea of a feast here coming up, which I think might be the type of party you're talking about, and it has to do with the Redmond family. Well, right after that, Michael Devereaux purchased Loftus Hall in 1983, and he was trying to turn it into Loftus Hall Hotel, but it didn't last that long. It closed down in the late 1990s. Now, here's something interesting. In 2008, Loftus Hall was sold by Devereaux's surviving family, and there were rumors that this unnamed buyer might be Bono of U2. Yeah, and that's <laughs> never been confirmed. And that could also just be a rumor. Those kinds of rumors, it's yeah, we completely don't, we don't unsubstantiated. Know. Right. Yeah. It's just somebody starts that rumor, it seems likely. He is Irish. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's, it, only, it's only a couple hours from Dublin, which that, is where U2's exactly. headquarters, you know, they have yeah. studios there. You know, right, yeah. What did they say? Two and a half hour drive? Two and like a half that? hours, yeah. So it's it's Little country possible. home. Right. It was falling down. It would be millions of dollars to fix, but hey. He can bear that storm, yeah. even on the peninsula there. Yeah. However, it's in decent shape today, fairly. Yes. And, thanks to the current owners. Right, like a lot of these places, they end up as basically a tourist attraction. So currently Loftus Hall is owned by the Aiden Quigley family, and they host tours for tourists, events, and Paranormal investigations, Which, of again, we're going to hear more about that later in this episode. Right. Of course, one of their more famous visitations was by Zach Baggins and his ghost adventures. And they did a show there in 2015. Now, here's something. Remember I was talking about the feast? Yes. Here's a, a fun little haunting story. This actually was on the Wikipedia page. And it's reported by the Quigley family that one of the more, I guess, noteworthy hauntings is that the Redmond family actually came by to visit, or at least their descendants. I think it was Brendan, his wife, and daughter Elizabeth, and they came down from Dublin, and they had claimed to be direct descendants of Alexander Redmond. Remember him? Oh, yeah. Mr. Woolsacks. Yes. Well, reportedly, they encountered a bunch of family ghosts around the site of Loftus Hall, 
And we're warned, here's the quote from the entry here, we're warned never to return without first hosting a feast in their lost family's honor. I thought that was cool. Oh, we'll throw us nice. a party. Yeah. Otherwise, get out. So interesting that that's part of one of the more current hauntings, but uh, we don't have any details on that. So here are a couple other notable things. Now we're in the current day. The horror thriller, The Lodgers, was shot there in 2016 and came out in 2017. That's fairly recently. That's on my Netflix list. And so today, the whole area of Loftus Hall not only refers to the mansion, but essentially the south end of the peninsula, the lands around there, is Loftus Hall. So it dominates the visitations around there. Right. Certainly, you can see it on the horizon there. Like I said, there wasn't a whole lot of trees obscuring it. You could be towards the coast and still see it. That's why it was very prominent. And as we said earlier, why the English were very aware of it and were keen on taking it. All right, so we've gone through the entire timeline history in large bullet points here of Loftus Hall, formerly Redmond Hall, or just the Hall. And it should give you some insight into its bloody past, but long-storied history as well, meaning lots of people there, lots of death, lots of imprint on the place. All right, so now that we've seen the whole history of the house, we're going to go back and take a look at what happened after the dark stranger left the house. When we look at the death of young Ann Tottenham and the things that happened in the house after she left, apparently there was a little bit of a problem with the home itself. Yeah, even if you don't believe in the devil story, which is pretty outlandish, pretty outrageous, pretty wild, rarely do you have a, an encounter like that witnessed by people where there's physical evidence, you could say, and one that's turned into family and regional and national legend. So let's examine what really happened. You may or may not believe the devil was there, but what you do believe is that this place was really, really haunted. Yeah, this is one of those cases where we've said a lot in this show so far about how the legend is kind of murky and it's hard to get at the details of what actually happened and who was there and how long did it play out and everything. But what isn't murky is the smoke that points to the fire. There is smoke here. Oh, brimstone smoke, yes. Yes, there is smoke here that says that there was a problem at that house and that is documented and that's what we're going to talk about now. So if you look at the religious political context of 18th century Ireland, you have basically a real, let's say, war of intolerance between Protestants and Catholics. And these families of peerage, the Loftuses and the Tottenhams, they are staunch, pious Protestants. And the general view of that group is, at worst, hatred of the Catholics, at best, general tolerance of them but certainly no love lost between the two groups on either side. Right. What we do know that's been documented is that there really was an exorcism performed by Father Thomas Broders of the Catholic Church. That seems to be a well-known documented fact. So what you're saying is that the Protestant family brought a Catholic priest in to do an exorcism at their home, Loftus Hall. And that is a great point to consider because imagine a well-known and respected and, like I said, noble family of the area who is Protestant getting so desperate that they call in a Catholic priest because they don't have any clergy on their side that are going to want to touch this thing. And of course, as we all know, the Catholic Church will do an exorcism. However, it's not like just asking a favor, like, hey, can you come over on Sunday for pot roast? The amount of permission to get the church to actually send a priest to do an exorcism is considerable. They have to believe it's a real definite case 
Yeah, and the priest has to get orders from their superiors to carry it out. Yeah, exactly. So it's like that today. That's why they just don't show up at every haunting to bless the place and try and do that. You really have to make a case. It has to go through several levels of approval before a priest will come out. Well, that fact alone, just imagine that, that they are so desperate, not only this family, but everybody who works there, the servants, the guests that stay there, the hauntings are of such a frequency that everybody is at their wit's end. And, and in one version of the story, it was like nightly. In addition to that, the way Chris Rush portrays it in his book, and again, he's dramatizing it, but this makes sense. It's a little bit of a problem for your image if you're Charles Loftus, and this is Loftus Hall, right. and your house has, is starting to get a reputation for strange things happening and maybe even something evil being present. That's not good. Yeah, well, <laughs> It's no, not good no. for the family name. No, but what's interesting, and we'll talk about this in our conclusions, is that if it's a made-up story by the family to cover up something, it's not the best decision because right. it, it just brings a lot of raised eyebrows, your direction. So what this tells me, and a lot of people who have studied this legend, is that there is something weird and supernatural going on, whether, you, again, you believe that the devil actually shot through the roof, but there's definite hauntings. And the major one is, ironically that of Anne Tottenham herself. Her ghost is reportedly seen at nights roaming the halls, every part of the place. This is the daughter, just from, to be clear, because yeah, we have two Anne's and the Anne Tottenham's in the story. Right, the one who eventually passed away in the tapestry room, she is said to haunt the place very regularly, disturbing everybody, freaking them out. And it's from the stables to the scullery room to the barn, every place She's roaming around. Also, it is said that at night, you can hear a galloping horse ride around the perimeter with its dark stranger on top of it, waiting to get in to see Anne once again. And of course, what's freaking people out is, that's the devil wanting to get back in. And he's trapped on the outside. And in a lot of versions of the story, she's locked up, whether mentally, physically, or both, in the tapestry room in the house. So they can never be together. Well, yeah, but it's all over the place because what's been reported is a very dark entity in the house yes. as well. Something that's not kind of a nicer or what you would expect to be nice 21-year-old woman who is just heartbroken and distraught, it's something else that's there. So in the documentary, I'm not sure if this is an actual letter. I wasn't able to find anything. It's certainly not scanned or anything. I think that Rick Whelan in the documentary may have found a letter, possibly in the local archives, could be in the church archives, a letter from the bishop to Canon Thomas Broders imploring him to go help. And the letter is read in the documentary, and I'll just read the contents here. Quote, After much consideration, I have no reason to doubt the Tottenham story, as it is now a rife among the congregation. By God's mercy and your faith, I urge you to proceed with haste to Loftus Hall and rid the family of that which disturbs them there by exorcism. God bless you, Tom. So that was a letter by the bishop, and how it seems to have played out is that the family was able to get a hold of the bishop asking the local parish priest to come and perform an exorcism. And not every priest is allowed to or fit to do it. And on top of that, this particular priest, everything that we found suggested that he was very revered by everyone in the area, by the way. After this, he was by right. everybody. And I think he was also revered because he was a priest for a very poor parish, and he also had to operate a little bit in secret because of the ongoing conflict between the Protestants and the Catholics. At least in the documentary, it says here, the punishment for unregistered priests was branding and castration. So yeah, that's it's very serious uh, business here. 
and to allow him to come in, again, it has to be the right priest because it takes a huge toll on the ones that do it, emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. But Father Brodus shows up, and over the course of several days, at least three, because three is that good number here, he performs the exorcism, and the document shows a lot of obstacles being thrown his way, slate tiles coming off the roof all day long without any wind, they were attacked by crows, a lot of strange stuff going on, howling, crying out, and that's another thing. They said that Anne's voice could be heard crying out at night, wanting to be let out of the tapestry room. And, you know, that's yeah. part of the legend. Yeah. But he really does come and perform this exorcism, and he was mostly successful. He was able to rid the house of most of the spirit activity, except for one room, and that is, of course, the tapestry room, where he was able to confine it. So all of the spiritual interaction was now based in the tapestry room, and it gives some peace to the family. Now, Father Tom is still remembered very well by the people of Hook, and his chalice apparently is still in daily use by the parish of Rams Grange nearby, where he was the priest for many, many years. Yeah, you can see it in the documentary. That's really cool. So that we do know. That really did happen. Again, it was so haunted, or there was so much suspected spirit activity that Father Brodus was called in, and he did a great job at a great physical toll to himself, but he continued to shepherd his flock there for many, many years afterwards. We read to you the inscription on his tombstone at the beginning of the show, Here Lies the Body of Thomas Broders, who did good and prayed for all and banished the devil from Loftus Hall. And Canon Broders died in January of 1773, and before that, he was the parish priest of the United Parishes of the Hook and Ramsgrange Parishes for almost 50 years. And he was so well-loved that there was kind of an argument that broke out. A friendly argument. Yes, a friendly argument, because he was so well-loved that the Loftus and Tottenham families couldn't decide where he should be buried. They wanted him close to their lands, and they compromised by burying him in a half-Catholic, half-Protestant cemetery. Yes, I believe that's the Whoretown Cemetery, which is unfortunately named, but I guess the, <laughs> it was named for a family whose last yeah. name was Hore, H-O-R-E. Well, we asked our guest tonight how to pronounce it, and he confirmed that it is Whoretown, so that's where the father is buried. In 1871, in some accounts, they say that Loftus Hall was leveled to the ground and a new mansion was built. But as we've talked about, there's some contention with that, but basically same footprint, we believe. Yeah, and that's the question there. That's the one fact that points to the idea that the house where the devil shot through the roof yeah. was torn down completely. But there's right. other folks that will tell you that that house had already been rebuilt into the structure that is there today, yeah. and that that's the one where he shot through the roof. And supposedly you can see in that house, the existing house, you can see where theoretically it happened. Well, there's a question about that as well, a little bit later on down the line here. But let me ask you this first. So in all your research, there's no name of the ship. There's no name of the stranger, right? That's right. There no one no ever names. mentions it. No one ever got his name. They did, but maybe it's, you know, I thought something like, it's he who shall not be named. Well, I just don't get it because the ship isn't named. We don't know where it came from or where it went. Cotton Eye Joe. But uh, <laughs> but we also don't know what his name was. And right. there was no point at which anyone said, well, they asked his name and he didn't give it or his name was X, Y, or Z. It just didn't happen. There is no name associated with it, which at first I was like, well, the lack of this detail makes this story less believable. But then I got to thinking if this was the devil himself in a way mm -hmm. that actually makes it more intriguing. That right, right. maybe they never thought to ask him his name. 
Exactly. Knows? Maybe he made them forget. You never know. But yeah. let's take a look at the people we do know about because, again, they are recorded real people. So let's examine the players, literally the card players, in this story. So explain to us again the relationship between the Tottenhams and the Loftuses. Charles Tottenham married into the Loftus family and had to take the Loftus name if he wanted to take over the estate. And so what happened was that he married Anne Loftus, whose father, Nicholas Loftus, the first Viscount of Eli, is the one who actually got the house from the Redmond family. And mm -hmm. he didn't get it directly from the Redmonds. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But her father was the man who owned the home. And he essentially said, Charles, if you want to lay claim to this home, you're going to have to take my family name so that it will continue right. if you marry my daughter. So Charles marries Anne, and then Charles Tottenham and Anne Loftus, or who becomes Anne Tottenham, have a daughter named Anne Tottenham, who is the girl who was 21 the night that this story took place. Right. But here's the thing, though. In addition to the sister that's sometimes mentioned and sometimes not in the story of this legend, that was Elizabeth, there was also several other kids who mm -hmm. all theoretically would have been the right age to be in the house at that time because there were six kids. Mm -hmm. So along with whoever might have been visiting, in theory, there were eight Loftus or Tottenham family members in the house. You know, we don't know that for sure. We yeah. know that at least Charles and Anne, the mom, and Anne, the daughter, were there for sure. We don't know if Elizabeth was. Elizabeth at the time would have been only 15 years old. Anne was the actually the older daughter. But the way Chris Rush depicts it, Elizabeth is the one who marries off and eventually moves away. But right. he, he may have, I think that's speculation because there's not a lot of information about Elizabeth. Well, if you want a lot of information, we stumbled upon a great website, I think dug up by Quaid in the Ark. Yes. Called Tottenham.name, N-A-M-E. And it looks like a genealogy website probably put together by a family historian or somebody in the family who was just in charge of the history of the family. Because again, these are families of peerage. and those tend to be very well recorded and it has all the family trees of everybody involved and it was really <laughs> too involved for us to get into here but you kind of know who the players are and Anne Tottenham was a real person as we keep saying because people will think that well really what happened to her she's part of the myth of this well she was born in 1744 according to this family tree died in 1775 the daughter of Charles Tottenham and Anne Loftus the granddaughter of Charles quote Tottenham in his boots, who is a major family patriarch in that line there. Apparently he was pretty famous around. Right, area. on her dad's side. Yeah. yeah. So where did she end up? Well, we're going to find out in a little bit. But first, let's examine the legend itself. Where was the first time this kind of popped up on the radar, shall we say, either orally or in print? Well, a famous telling of the story, according to this Tottenham.name website, the wife of the third Marquess of Eli, and this would be the mother of the fourth Marquess, the most honorable John Henry Wellington Graham Loftus, the one who designed a lot of the remodeling starting in 1872 with the guidance of his mother, and was a descendant of the Baron Loftus in the story, the guy who supposedly witnessed the shooting through the roof event. This story was told to Queen Victoria by his mother, Lady Jane Hope Vere Loftus. She was a lady of Her Majesty's bedchamber, and apparently Queen Victoria told Lady Jane that she didn't believe in such things, but that her husband, Prince Albert, did believe, and he shouldn't be told the story because it's going to freak him out. Well, <laughs> Prince Albert died a short while later, but probably not from being told the story. Right. But a lot of people are watching the PBS series, Victoria. It's very well done. Lots of fun stuff. Thought I'd put that in there because that's an instance where somebody pretty famous is being told the story. Well, what about in print? An early full account of the story 
was published in the Whitehall Review of September 28, 1882, and the author was the Reverend George Reed. Make a note of that name, he comes up pretty prominently. Reverend Reed's connection to the story was that he was appointed to a living, quote-unquote, meaning he was granted an ecclesiastical office guaranteeing a fixed income or property, by Lord Robert Tottenham when he was the Bishop of Clower and was known to Lord Robert's son, the Reverend Robert Tottenham. So all these family members became members of the clergy later on. And an abridged version of Reverend George Reed's account appears in True Irish Ghost Stories by Seymour Nelligan, published in 1926. So it seems at least about 117 years later, the story is published, maybe for the first time in print, we don't know, but possibly from a telling by a Tottenham family member. And I know that's kind of vague, but at least you can't claim it came from creepypasta. <laughs> I didn't want to make a point of that. So I'm not sure the author of this website seems to go unnamed. There's no about page, but it seems they have a family connection and they were reading a lot of the documents provided by the family histories and accounts. So I tend to trust it. So I'm not sure if they're pulling this from Reverend Reed's account, but here are some summary differences in this telling. The mysterious young stranger has just lost his way and he's knocking at the outer gate and falls in love with him. The stranger's in love too, but the parents don't approve. So he rides off, no shooting through the roof. He seemed to be- And also no cloven feet. Not that I can tell, yeah. at least in the version that shows up on this family, like genealogy website yes. of sorts. He seemed to be, quote, an agreeable companion and a finished gentleman, end quote. And here's an interesting note. The Reverend Robert Tottenham reported many years later that he'd been told by a member of the Eli family that a skeleton had been found behind a closet in this chamber, the tapestry room, when it was being rebuilt. Now, the documentary mentions a skeleton being discovered during the 1870s renovation, but there's no mention, they don't know, I guess, if it was an adult or child skeleton. This is literally a skeleton in the closet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, is... I just wanted to double check on well, that. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, you know, again, the house has secrets. Yes. And uh, at least this is one source for that story of the skeleton being found in the walls. So that's a solid connection to at least the story of it being found, but we don't know whose it was or what happened to it. So right after the incident, people, quote, were distressed by frequent noises and apparitions, and that's when they finally called in the parish priest, Father Brodus, who succeeded, quote, by the exorcisms of the church in confining the operations of the evil spirit to the one tapestry chamber, end quote. So that comes back to what we were talking about with Father Brodus. So an accounting of some of the people at the time, the real people, well, let's also examine some accounts from real people of the era. This would be afterwards, but these are some of the more famous haunting stories reported by them. So sometime around 1790, not too long after the actual devil card game, Reverend George Reed's father stayed at the hall with a large party and was given the tapestry room to sleep in. <laughs> You'll find a lot of these stories start in the tapestry room. I guess they moved a bed in there. Of all the rooms to stay in, that seems like not the right yeah, one. I'm sure it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's where a lot of these stories originate, though. The account quotation is, quote, Something heavy leapt upon his bed, growling like a dog. The curtains were torn back and the clothes stripped from the bed. End quote. And Reverend Reed's father thought that some of his companions were playing tricks on him, so he shouted at them, warning them, and then he fired his pistol up the chimney to frighten them. <laughs> you know, I guess you could, <laughs> that's just a natural thing you do. Yeah. But he searched the room, and of course, nothing was found, and his door had been locked the entire time. Because well, he left it locked before getting into bed. Then, later on, and this would be at least after 1806, 
The second Marquess of Eli was staying in the hall when his valet, Shannon, was given the tapestry room to sleep in, and he woke up the whole house with his screams during the night. Shannon said the bed curtains had been violently torn back, and he saw, quote, a tall lady dressed in stiff brocaded silk, end quote. Terrified, he left the room in a hurry. Can't say as I blame him. Later on, both Reverend George Reed and his father were staying at the hall, but George did not know about his father's earlier ghostly experience, and he chose the tapestry room to sleep in. These guys keep making the same mistake over and over. <laughs> Unless you're a paranormal investigator, and then that's the room you want. Yeah. Well, as George stayed up late reading an article in Blackwood's Magazine, Blackwood's Magazine was published in 1817, so the encounter would have had to have been after that. So as George read the article by the light of a bright moonlit night, he saw the door open, and a tall lady in a stiff dress passed through the room without a sound and disappeared into a closet in the corner. For whatever reason, it didn't occur to George that this was a ghost and he fell right back asleep. So two interesting notes here, as we often have that reported phenomenon of people falling right asleep after seeing a ghost or some kind of spiritual encounter. Seems George had that. And also, ghosts love closets. Yes. Uh, and, and maybe there's it has something to do with the skeleton. Could be. Don't know, but that closet is a hot spot here. Well, this encounter happened again the next night, except this time George rushed towards the woman, and he tried to throw his right arm around her and exclaimed, quote, Ha! I have you now! End quote. And his arm passed right through her and came with a thud against the bedpost. She just kept going on, and her silk brocaded gown lapped against the curtain. And the next morning, uh, he told his father, who said nothing, which was odd, but I guess he didn't want to talk about it. He right. Just, he's too freaked out. This doesn't make sense. And so George actually didn't think much about it, according to his testimony here. And he slept in the same room without disturbance many nights after that. Some years later, George Reed was again at the hall, and he heard the valet, Shannon, tell the housekeeper that, quote, he would sooner leave his lordship's service than sleep in the tapestry chamber, end quote. Reed asked him why, and Shannon then told him the story of Anne, which he'd never heard before. So I'm sure that, that totally freaked him out. Yeah, because he saw the ghost before he heard the story. Right. So was this when Reverend George Reed heard the devil's tale? In the documentary, this encounter might be the one described as happening during the 1860s when a young man who had arrived with a hunting party wasn't aware he'd seen her ghost. Right. There's a whole passage in the documentary where this is described, but then reading this other account, we realize it seems to be Reverend George Reed. Yes. They changed it around a little bit. Well, you also had a quote here in the documentary. Why don't you read that for us? A beautiful young thing entered my room. Having indulged myself earlier, not wisely, but alas too well, my senses were somewhat diminished and I soon lapsed into a death-like sleep before I could corner this temptress. The next day I shot four deer and left the chaps to their own devices. <laughs> in, the, in the film, that's one of the dramatizations. That yes. He, uh, he tries to grab onto her, which probably not so cool. Again, this is the yeah. MTV classic film. What's interesting though is that, yeah, the the first time he sees the woman disappear into the closet, doesn't think anything about it. The second time he actually tries to encounter her and passes right through her. Encounter her. <laughs> well, it was a different time, sir. Yeah, that's, well, so that's nice speak for lunge at and try to grab this poor lady ghost around the waist. It was way before the Me Too movement. I think the idea was that he was trying to interact with her, not to cast any aspersions on the good reverend, but I think he was trying to touch her, really. But as it goes, the story goes, I think as he told it, is that he tried to hug her or something or just get her to stand still because she kept moving. That was the weird thing. Yeah. She floated around. So I think he just kind of reached out, tried to grab her. That's when his arm 
hit the bedpost, that's when he realized she was not solid. Yeah. So that must have been quite a shock. That's not the only case of encounters happening in there, though, right? No, these are testified to in older texts, I think, from the late 19th century. But there's one that coincides with the documentary. Now, the Tottenham.name website describes a few more encounters that do seem to kind of line up with the documentary we've been talking about. Uh, One involving the Reverend Charles Dale, and it connects the most honorable John Henry Wellington Graham Loftus, the fourth Marquess of Eli, and his mother, Lady Jane Hope Veer Loftus, to a haunting. Now, John Henry succeeded to the title of fourth Marquess in 1857 at the tender age of eight. So he was just a kid. And this often told haunting happened in 1858. And he and his mother, Lady Jane, had come to the hall for the, what they call the bathing season. Must be chilly, I imagine. But but they're bathing. I think it's just swimming, you know, the time when you can actually swim there. Yeah. Uh, Along with his tutor, the Reverend Charles Dale. Dale was put up in that damn tapestry room once again (laughs) and came down to breakfast one morning quite shaken up, but he didn't want to say what was the matter. Now, in the autumn, Lord Henry Loftus, the uncle of the fourth Marquess, wrote to Reverend George Reed and told him about Charles Dale and what happened to him, and also told him that a Mr. Derringee had slept in the tapestry room and had a, quote, splendidly fitted dressing case, end quote, ransacked during the night. So stuff's getting disturbed here. No, these guys are both reverends, both of these. So we've got... Right. So we have the Reverend Charles Dale. He is the tutor. And then we have... Reverend George Reed. Okay. And actually, there's a few Tottenhams and I think Loftuses that became men of the cloth. So yeah, getting back, this very nice case was torn apart during the night. So the Marquesque asked Reed what his experience had been. And George Reed then wrote to Charles Dale asking him, and Dale wrote back that he'd slept in the tapestry room for three weeks with nothing happening. And he also had never heard of Ann Tottenham's story. But then, one moonlit night, the same thing happened to him as what happened to George Reed's father. He felt something heavy jumping onto the bed. He heard growling and the bedclothes being torn off. Now, Dale later asked about it, and he spoke with an old woman named Haggard. (laughs) Maybe that's how she looked. I don't know if that's her. I think it's the last name. She lived to be 106, and... Haggard had told him the whole story of Anne and the devil and said she remembered Father Brodus, who was summoned to perform the exorcism by the Loftuses. That's that, amazing. That she's that old that she remembers that happening. So yeah. that is at least a confirmation of Father Brodus having come to perform the exorcism. I like that. See, that goes in the column of hard facts, which will come up in my conclusions in part two. Well, yeah, it's uh, sure it's eyewitness testimony, but it was known by the household. That's the story we're trying to tell here is that we don't really know what happened on that evening per se, but something weird did and continued to enough that everybody in the household knew about it and the staff didn't want to work there anymore. It was that bad. So the version that ends up in the documentary is that There were many firsthand accounts of hauntings that happened at the hall, and it was very regular. And in 1858, some 80 years after Anne's death, Reverend Charles Dale, it's confirmed or or corresponds to this account that he was indeed a tutor to the children. And he was described as, you know, being very no-nonsense, solid, steady guy, not prone to flights of fancy, but it was so creepy that he only stayed there three nights. And after the third night, he split back to England. Right. So that's one version of the Charles Dale story. But what's interesting is that, yeah, he's also a real guy who really showed up at the hall and obviously had some weird stuff happen or witnessed it. 
Then the Reverend George Reed visited the hall again in 1868 when the place had been through a fair amount of alterations, with the tapestry room having been turned into a billiards room. Now Reed asked an old housekeeper what Ann Tottenham had thought about the changes, and the housekeeper replied, Oh, Master George, don't talk about her. Last night she made a horrid noise knocking the billiard balls around. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, so... that's the, well, no, that goes back to that old trope of once you make changes to the house, the spirits there don't like it, and they will let you know, and they they cause a ruckus. And this is crazy. This is uh, a little over 100 years after the original incident. Yeah, I mean, I, still, I know it would have been 90 years or so after Anne died. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a, you know, generation and a half or, or more, but sure. uh, or maybe two generations. But, you know, what's interesting is that it's a long time, I know, but not in the time span of the life of the hall. So now I wonder... You know, with all these people being real life people who lived here and died here, whatever happened to Ann Tottenham, Ann Tottenham Loftus, where was she buried? Where did she go? Was it the old movie thing where she's locked away in some walled off, you know, attic thing chained to the wall and that's what's haunting the place? Or was she given a good Christian burial? So now when we come back to part two, we're going to find out just where Ann Tottenham ended up. And we're going to learn that she may indeed have died under very mysterious circumstances. That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series on Loftus Hall. We'll be back next week with the second part. Please join us. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. My name is Brock Randolph. When he's not trucking down the highway. Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. C. Astonishing Legends. Galaxy Wide in Perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.